Welcome back to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Hey guys, good to be back. Sorry for the long delay between episodes. You know, life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. That's a phrase I originated. Yeah, it's been what, three weeks? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it's been a while. Sorry, guys. I don't know. I had a lot of writing to do. Will, I don't know what his excuse is, but uh, <laughs> yeah, we're sitting here in my apartment. This is a living room episode. Some of them, most of them are kitchen episodes, but uh, my kitchen is in too much of a state of disrepair. A little um, peek behind the scenes. I know people are very interested in, you know, our personal lives and, you know, the world behind the podcast. And that's just well, a little peek into it. Bringing, as I often do, a kind of materialist analysis to things. You know, I want to give people a hint at kind of the, the means of production. So, yeah, there's a living room episode. And we're going to do it about South Park. Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, the movie, A Real Blast from the Past. And we think this is going to be kind of part one of, like, a South Park extravaganza. Because originally we wanted to do just one episode on South Park proper and you know it was kind of getting late Will and I dragged our feet a little bit we spent too much time watching kind of our usual cycle of kind of dumb like shit on YouTube we watch cool duder wet movie one <laughs> I'm naming names um yeah shit's getting real folks um yeah just various like dumb things we watch on YouTube and this is running a little late so we you know it's an 80 minute movie it's just a short one but I realized you know I think even if we'd had more time you know, watching kind of five or six episodes of the show after was not really going to be viable. So because I proposed the idea that maybe the movie would be enough and we could just talk about South Park. But I think you correctly thought that South Park is too big a topic for just one episode. Yeah, I mean, I think that whether you like it or not, and I mean, I think both of us kind of have mixed feelings about it. It was just something that was really central for a lot of people to be listening. And so I'm not sure that it can kind of reasonably be covered. There's just too much to talk about. And we might even make it, uh, I don't know if we'll do it consecutively, but a, you know, a kind of trifecta will loop in Team America at some point. But it has been three weeks since we've met for this podcast, and a lot has happened in those three weeks. Here in Ontario, a provincial election campaign is underway, not officially, but the Progressive Conservative Party has voted on its new leader, and it is friend of the show Doug Ford, who I think is going to win. So, I mean, what? Yeah, yeah I'm not yeah. going to... You're not, you're not going to comment on that? I simply, no. I, I just don't see how we can lose. I think um, it's the perfect storm. People have three months to get used to the idea, okay? You know, the Fords are always at their best when they're running against, you know, some boring liberal. Um, the liberals have been in power for 16 years. How, like how long? Since, since 2003. And, you know, the Fords are good at having just one or two things that they hammer home forever. In this one, it's going to be the carbon tax and it's going to be the deficit. They're just going to say that over and over and over and over again. And people think, oh, well, the carbon tax and the deficit. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not really very, I'm not disinterested when we're talking about Ontario politics because four years ago I was like actually a candidate in the Ontario election. So it's it's hard for me to talk about it and kind of maintain the ironic ethos for which the show is so famous. But uh, I don't think Doug Are you Ford, too emotionally invested in it? I am emotionally invested. Yeah. I don't think Doug Ford's victory is at all inevitable. I think, don't think he's kind of as beloved as... Uh, his brother, I think, you know, the PC party has a lot of problems. It's a poll lead largely predicated on the unpopularity of kind of the sitting regime. I think there's a much more popular uh, and liked leader that is, is also running the election uh, that has a much better platform. Um, and uh, I don't know, I think uh, most people have not really been paying attention either, like, 
you know, as what one thing we saw in the British election was that anything can happen. Well, I mean, anything can happen. I feel like that's almost a cliche, but I was going to say people really start paying attention once the election actually starts. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a huge number of people that just politics is not like for you and I, political animals, you know, part of our part of their day to day lives. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, who knows what can happen when uh, they actually start paying attention. I truly have no I mean, I don't want to make um, predictions I think predictions are stupid, but I really think it's going to be a uniquely chaotic election. I think there are too many factors. It's hard to kind of have a, a narrative in advance. And I, I don't pr- particularly want to. I'm going to be uh, telling people to vote NDP. I think that's by far the best thing, most constructive thing people can do and you may wish to endorse Doug Ford on behalf well, of the Well, I just show, think we but... need to shake things up a little bit. <laughs> I mean, for the for the yin and the yang of it, you know, got to get a got to get a, some new ideas. Thanks, Will. <laughs> uh, what's been new with you? I don't know. I had like a really busy writing week last week. One of those things where I don't know, I kind of left, you know, some some book reviews to like I don't know the last kind of 2 weeks before they were due and wasn't that bad, but I did have to crunch and get things done. And so I reviewed uh, David Frum's really excellent uh, new book on Trump. And uh, he reposted to his blog without Jacobin Magazine's permission. I think what I like about David Frum most is that he's a rare principled conservative. <laughs> you know, he's like, you know, many conservatives have fallen in line behind Donald Trump, not David Frum. It's, it's a really bad book. It was honestly such a slog to read. And I mean, I, I do wish... He responded to it kind of properly because, I mean, if we're being serious, if I can just be serious for David Frum responded to Luke's book review. That's the backstory to this. If people, well, I mean, he responded to it by being like, "Oh, Lowell Jacobin Magazine, you know, doesn't think I'm Marxist enough or something." Mm -hmm. But I mean, I read the book quite carefully, and I I was determined not to do. You know, if you're if you're assigned to review a book by David Frum from the left, it's pretty tempting to just write the "Why would we ever listen to David Frum? He's a hypocrite." Take. I mean, there is a little bit of that because, frankly, it's relevant. But, I mean, I read the book and I tried to deal with its arguments on their own terms. And I think that you don't even have to read the book from the left to think it fails. I mean, it's a really boring book. Much of it consists of kind of summary of, you know, just articles from the New York Times, the Washington Post, other people's reporting, Politico. There are, you know, whole sections that consist of these large block quotes where you're just reading a Trump speech or Mm -hmm. something like that. What's Mm -hmm. his overarching thesis? What is his problem with the Trump presidency? So his thesis is that many things contributed to producing Trump, you know, increasing rancor and partisanship, failure to compromise, various strands of discontent that he identifies. And there's a lot of conversation we had there about... (laughs) You know, the various strands of discontent that he kind of equates as being sort of morally equal, but we won't go there for now. All of it kind of produced this dangerous presidency that's chipping away at the Constitution, chipping away at democratic norms. Um, But honestly, he doesn't really have a convincing explanation. I would say the book almost hits kind of every explanation for the Trump presidency that you've sort of seen done in a take in a centrist publication it sort of hits at but doesn't even really expound upon all those things so it's you know white men who felt alienated by you know the new politics of identity that's kind of lazily dealt with in a few things it's it's fake news which hilariously he kind of tries to pin on like the postmodern turn in the academy so i guess oh, foucault is to blame for yeah. info wars 
Thanks, brain genius David from Russia things. stuff. Does he? Yeah, on Russia that? stuff, unemployment in the Midwest, things like that. But the big problem with the book, aside from just kind of the sheer laziness of it, is that there are no solutions that are proportionate to the scale of the problems he's diagnosing. So put another way, I mean, he sets out to establish that there's this kind of unique threat to, you know, democratic liberalism in America. And the most he can kind of give us is, you know, it's time to demand integrity and to to stand up and Mm -hmm. say enough is enough. I mean, I don't think he even uses language that's that. But he's not really into anything that's kind of like a mass movement or a grassroots movement. No, he equates the Bernie Sanders campaign with the Nazis. Mm. I mean, like, not joking. You can look at my review, look up from Fromocracy at Jacobin magazine. I mean, there's a passage quote in it at length, and he actually does do that. But like, how are people supposed to stand up against this um, corrupt regime, if not through some grassroots movement? Well, it's, I mean, it's not, it's a good question. It's not entirely clear. I mean, in the final chapter, which is called Hope, where he's like, well, there are positive signs or whatever amidst the darkness that Trump presidency and it's things like, well, you know, one reader sent me this email saying that, you know, for the first time in his life, he's taking politics seriously. So he's yeah. reading John Stuart Mill, you know, <laughs> which like, no, no, nothing against John Stuart Mill at all. I mean, it, I, I love that shit, but that wouldn't be sort of where I'd begin the resistance to Donald Trump. So the idea is to have a more informed citizenry so that when they go to the ballot box every two or four years... Something like that. And uh, he, he says, you know, the Trump presidency is giving the left, by which, of course, he means liberals, because David Frum can't discriminate between the two. Uh, he's like, well, they're learning to appreciate our national security agencies. Oh, <laughs> and so, you know, they're learning you can't just callously dismiss the CIA and stuff like that. So there's a bunch of things like that. But I mean, yeah, basically, you know, real collective action is off the table. Like, for example, there's a bit where he's dealing with the Republican Party. And he says, you know, we, we need the Republican Party to get serious. And by that, he, his agenda for the Republican Party is for it to temporarily put on hold the ultimately laudable, as he describes it, goal of cutting the top marginal rate of tax. (laughs) Because people are too concerned about inequality now for that to be like politically potable. So even if we want to do it, we need to put that on hold. He wants the Republicans to adopt a bunch of like tax credit schemes and he wants them to sort of start talking about the environment, but doesn't really... David Frum, I believe, was like against the Kyoto Accord and various other things. It's all its all just very vague. It is, dare I say it, very like Sorkin-esque in the fact that like the rhetoric is very soaring and kind of superficially the aims are kind of laudable, but like there's no there there. Like all you can do at the end of the day because there's no real politics to it is just kind of affirm the Constitution and affirm America. So it's a, it's a bad book. And I I wish he'd actually responded to it, but that would have been too much to hope for. When Trump was elected, I don't think I fully anticipated how much that would fuel this sort of liberal need to like rehabilitate yeah. old school republicanism. Mm. You know, liberals needing to believe that Trump is an aberration and that all the presidents before were some degree of honorable. Mm. Uh, I don't think I anticipated the extent to which that mm. would need to be the case for them. No, and it's it's it takes a very ahistorical perspective to believe that. I mean, I cited in the article, I mean, that for, for people that think, you know, Donald Trump is uniquely kind of self-aggrandized, I mean, obviously I'm not dismissing missing the problem of Trump but I mean people that think it's exceptional or whatever I mean just go back and watch go on YouTube and watch George Bush land on that aircraft carrier <laughs> in full military garb I don't think actually Trump himself has approached I mean he he tends more towards the carnivalesque but I don't think he is 
broached anything as like overtly fascistic as mm-hmm. that. The jingoism is too much to, and you know, the man who did that now has a net positive approval rating with Democrats. So that's where we're at. Are you excited to see everybody saying that you should buy on Amazon now to like stick it to Trump? Oh, what are you supposed to buy on Amazon? Just anything on Amazon oh, because anything. he's feuding with Jeff Bezos now. Oh, right. Well, maybe wait, one thing people could buy is the, uh, the resistance cookbook. What's it called? Have you seen that? No. Call, I think it's called like, uh, cooking for the resistance or something <laughs> it's like the most cash grabby of all these books it's literally just like a recipe book and the idea is that it's supposed to be like so you can cook while you're doing political activism or something what, what <laughs> sorts of things do you cook while you're because i would think you would need something to kind of grab on the go while you're busy with the uh, hard work of political activism i don't know i do i do something carb heavy you need like you know a good energy source but i don't know it depends on the activism people are doing because i imagine a lot of what what they're actually doing is posting, which uh, I wouldn't recommend. I don't think you need those carb sources to fuel that. I I don't need them. <laughs> so let's move on to South Park. Tonight we up. watched South Park Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, the 1999 uh, so far only feature film spinoff of South Park. Step one, instead of ass, say buns, like kiss my buns or you're a buns hole. Step two, instead of shit, say poo, as in pull, poo, poo, head in this poo is cold. Step three, with bitch, drop the tea, cause big is Latin for generosity. Step four, don't say fuck anymore, cause fuck is the worst word that you can say. So just use the word okay. We can do it, it's all up to us, okay. okay. You know, I I haven't been a regular viewer of South Park for probably at least seven or eight years, maybe more. Uh, So it it felt a little odd to watch this removed from kind of the transgressive context of like, you know, seeing it as a kid or a teenager and feeling it was somehow dangerous to watch Mm -hmm. do you remember when you first saw this movie yeah i think i was in grade seven or eight um and it was you know mind-blowing for me at the time uh and i still like it i have to say when did you first see it it was yeah probably around the same time like grade yeah grade like seven eight nine i can't i can't really remember you know like on the cusp of adolescence and uh and i also remember before that there were kids that i knew who had seen it Mm. and you know they so i they tasted the forbidden fruit yeah it was very much like there's a scene in this movie when the south park kids go see the terrence and philip movie and cartman goes i've seen the terrence and philip movie who wants to touch me right you know that's what it was like yeah i remember there was a kid that had like played pokemon yellow he didn't have it (laughs) but he played it and we were all stuck with pokemon red and blue and there was very much a like we're not worthy feeling i'm sure you have this feeling like when we were kids there were certain entertainments for grown-ups that felt dangerous or forbidden somehow stuff that seemed like there was regular r-rated stuff and then there was stuff that was like super r-rated you know marilyn manson maybe (laughs) stuff like that south park i don't know pulp fiction that kind of thing yeah i i don't remember exactly when it was but i do remember that it was one of my birthday parties and my like my birthday parties for several years were just out invite my friends over and we'd be in my basement and we would just stay up the whole night and mm-hmm. we would watch, you know, like, I don't know, movies that we thought were kind of edgy, you know, so we, we'd watch like Road Trip, those kind of like yeah. gross out comedies. American like, Pie. Yeah. And we watched, I, I don't know if we ever watched American Pie, probably though, but like that kind of thing. And then we watched this and I just remember like when the, the, the second song, I guess when they go to the movie theater 
shut your fucking face, Uncle Fucker. Where, I mean, basically the joke is they just say fuck for like two mm-hmm. minutes straight. But I like was like rolling on the floor laughing like my sternum was going to break. I was laughing so hard. But it was also very important to me at the time the movie was political as well. <laughs> that gave somehow to me as a kid gave it an extra legitimacy to See, it. I, I Weirdly enough, I don't actually remember identifying with it in that way. Interesting. Yeah. For me as a kid, it almost felt like the politics of the movie gave me permission to enjoy everything else. Right. Like the fact that it was somehow righteous and it was somehow mature. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess uh, for those who haven't seen it or, I mean, it is it is almost 20 years old at this point. That's so mind boggling. Just crazy to yeah. think it's, ni- it's 19 years old. Yeah. We should kind of tell people what it's about. I mean, it's a trim 80 minutes, but... As a sit, it, it felt a little longer because it's jam-packed. It's very dense. Action-packed. So much happening, so fast-paced. Yeah. And just exhausting, mm-hmm. you know? So I think this movie came out maybe two or three years after South Park first started airing, and I think there's a meta... A little long. Gotta be a little longer, Maybe right? a little longer, yeah. but it's got a bit of a meta dimension to it where I feel like it's kind of about yeah. South Park and how controversial it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, the kids from uh, South Park, Colorado, I yeah. believe, is it? that's right. Yeah, just like... Uh, Littleton, mm-hmm. Stan and uh, Kenny and uh, Cartman and the whole gang, they, it feels ridiculous to describe. Yeah, yeah. It, it feels ridiculous describing the plot of this movie because I, like, how is it possible that people don't know what this movie is about 20 years on? I think but, maybe, maybe a lot of people saw the show, but they might not have seen the movie. I don't know. I feel so, like we just got to do due diligence. Yeah, Because yeah. at the end of the day, we're journalists and, you know, that's... And it's expected <laughs> from this show, right? Yeah. It's part of the structure of that's it. That's right. So the boys are very excited because the new R-rated film starring their TV heroes, Terrence and Phillip... Canadian comedians. ...has just opened in town called Asses of Fire... The first of many great jokes. Uh, they It's rated R, so they get a homeless man to pretend to be their guardian. And the movie is full of profanity and sexual humor. And they leave the theater saying all the swear words. I remember when I was in Especially grade... Especially the F word, which you did not hear on the show. Like, they would beep it yeah. out on the show. Uh, I remember when I was a kid in grade five, when the movie came out, the kids who had seen it were full of new words that they learned <laughs> from the movie. Uh mm-hmm. A case of life imitating art Mm. and the parents of south park are very concerned about the words that these kids are learning and one of the kids uh, little kenny uh, has died imitating a stunt that he learned from the movie and this causes the blue nose prudish parents of south park to wage a censorship campaign against not only Terrence and Philip and their related products, but also against the nation of Canada, which eventually leads to a full-scale war. But also a parallel plot is that if Terrence and Philip are executed, that will lead to... It will trigger the new reign of Satan. Yeah. Who is who is fucking Saddam Hussein, who's right. just a kind of side character in the movie. Yeah, and Saddam Hussein and Satan have a gay relationship, yeah. which was a much more um, a hot-button topic when this movie came out, I think, than it would be now. Yeah. So how did this movie hold up for you? <laughs> it's uh, it's definitely funny in places. Like, it was nice, oh, to, come it was on. nice to revisit. No, no, it's... It is is funny. Um, I actually kind of experienced it in a similar way to when I was like 13 or 14, which is like almost less political to me than the show. I mean, like when we we talk about the show, I feel like we'll be able to get into politics a little more because I think, you know, the South Park creators have kind of a sort of libertarian politics that I think are mostly bad. But in the movie, you know, your your description of it as a meta commentary on the South Park universe 
that sort of more seems like what it's doing to me. Well, I feel it was after this movie that South Park became kind of a current affairs show, right? Mm -hmm. The animation became much more streamlined Mm -hmm. and they were able to respond to news events much more quickly Mm -hmm. after this. And also, I think their ambitions grew. Much like our show. Yeah. That said, I mean, what were the politics of the time? This movie came out towards the tail end of, you know, that 1990s culture war. I mean, throughout the decade, people like Bob Dole were in Congress talking about how we need to censor movies like Scream. Yeah, video games. and And this, I think, would have come out around the same time that the Columbine massacre happened when everybody was talking about, oh, you know, was it loud, heavy metal music or was it violent video games that influenced the Columbine kids? There are numerous references in the movie to the MPAA, which is the Motion Picture Association of America and their rating system. And it was a much discussed topic of controversy at the time that the MPAA was lenient towards violent movies, but much harder on sexual content and profanity. I don't know, It parts of the movie feel very relevant to today, but it also feels like trapped in amber in very this displaced, like pre-9-11 yeah. political context. Mm-hmm. It also seems to come out of this universe where, I hate to invoke the end of history again, because we do it in almost every episode, but like... <laughs> That's on that's on the bingo, the bingo sheet. But like the idea that the biggest concern for liberals on the left at the time was free speech and not, you know, all the issues that people are talking about now, like race, seems very of its you mean, time. You mean free speech, like fighting back against prudish kind of moralistic, yeah. Yeah. Like moral majority types and stuff. Yeah, because free, free speech has come back in a big way as an issue, but it's come back in a completely different context. Mm-hmm. I think what the movie kind of partly gets gets at which i like and you know what i like about the movie is the vulgarity of it i think that's kind of the half of south park that is sometimes useful which is the kind of sheer brazen grossness of it but then the trouble is and i mean we'll get to this more when we talk about the show that often that's moored to a you know i mean the show got as you said like much more topical and it's but it's it's anchored to kind of a politics which is very like passive and which is about how um i I mean i guess just to like foreshadow what i'm gonna say in the next episode Mm -hmm. you know like i think that one of the deep theses of the south park show is that like people trying to make the world better like they're the problem Mm -hmm. you know like the antagonists in in a lot of episodes of south park are people sometimes on the left sometimes on the right but who have like a concern and they try to kind of act upon that concern and usually it's the mere fact of them trying to fix something that like exacerbates or even creates the problem Mm -hmm. but that's not really i mean i guess uh it's kind of in a way it's kind of there with the the like censorship campaign that leads to like a war Um, i mean the movie you know i think their point of view is that like the kids shouldn't be watching the terrence and philip movie you think that's their point of view I mean, but no, think about in that early scene when they're watching the movie and then it, you know, the people on the screen are swearing and then it cuts to the little baby and he's swearing along with it. I mean, I think you're supposed to think that's a bad thing, but they go with much more enthusiasm against the prudish blue nose types. That's true. And, you know, they always kind of... That's another trope of South Park. They always cover their ass, is Which is the sort of, like, I would argue sometimes phony, like, both sides-ism of it. Yeah. Where it's like, they're like, we lampoon everybody. And that's Team America, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, which even at the time, I remember thinking it wasn't, like, 
quite up to snuff, but I think watching it again, it's going to age really badly, even if it does feature a simulacrum of patron saint of the show, Michael Moore. But that said, Team America and this movie are very funny. Mm-hmm. Um, I maybe, was, maybe is Team America funny? I like. I think it's got funny. I mean, I could I could rattle off. I mean, I haven't seen it in you know, only, a decade or more, but I, I could rattle off once. a half dozen hilarious moments to you right now. Fair, fair enough. And you know, this movie, I was fucking laughing all the way yeah, through yeah, it. We were laughing. You know, one of the things to say about this movie is, I mean, fucking say what you want about the South Park guys, but like, I mean, they wrote a real musical. You know what I mean? Oh like, yeah, and it's really informed by a deep knowledge of you know the Broadway form. Yeah, there's like, a lot of like Les Mis kind of there, stuff there's beauty and the beast mm-hmm. there i don't know like i'm sure somebody who actually knows this stuff could tell you they all sound like pastiches of other yeah. musicals and there is something sort of liberating about this movie you know it kind of put me back in mind of it's been so long since you know a popular comedy has come along that has felt genuinely transgressive don't you remember the feeling of going to see something like uh, Borat mm-hmm. and there was this sense like how far is he gonna push it mm-hmm. you know, you know you, th- I always think of your story when you, you reviewed Bruno I guess for the varsity yeah and people were walking out I feel like that doesn't quite exist anymore you know around this time there were all these like envelope pushing comedies but you know the idea of a comedy where it feels like there's no safety net anymore comedy seems to become much nicer yeah well comedy is more didactic now isn't it it's more about a message and you know comedy i do think suffers a little bit under a well, it suffers in different ways under a Republican or a Democrat, you know, president, doesn't it? Because under a Democrat president, it's kind of in the service of defense. And, and under a Republican president, it's in the service of offense, but a very sort of like, I, I don't know, apolitical kind, which is sort of just like, I don't know, it becomes kind of partisan and it becomes about like, you know, we got to correct the record and we speak call these to people power. out. And yeah. And yeah. this is where it comes back to that end of history idea, because this movie and a movie like Borat are at the this time when kind of the dominant idea is that racism is solved and sexism is solved and so since they're solved we can say whatever we want because it's post-political correctness that's an interesting uh that's an interesting and the pendulum has you know even in the 10 years since borat the pendulum has swung completely in the other direction Mm-hmm. I think people would feel like it's almost irresponsible to make a movie like this now. Yeah. You know, because we're clearly not post-political correctness. Yeah, absolutely. You're an uncle fucker. Yes, it's true. Nobody fucks uncles quite like you. Shut your fucking face, uncle fucker. You're the one that fucked your uncle, uncle fucker. You don't eat or sleep or mow the lawn. You just fuck your uncle all day long. I loved this movie when I was a teenager, and... I went through a couple of years where I would watch South Park pretty religiously, but I'm not sure that I would have ever called myself a huge fan of South Park. Um, I've always felt myself kind of wrestling with it. Even when I was a teenager, there were episodes like the Man Bear Pig episode or the Smug Alert episode that I just didn't like. I always thought Man Bear Pig was some of the weakest shit they ever came up with. Or, you know, that Million Little Pieces episode with Oprah. Even at that age, didn't really like their politics. Mm -hmm. How big a fan were you? Probably a little bigger than what you just described. I mean, like, I definitely remember watching pretty regularly, even into, like, I remember in first year university watching, they threw together an episode in a few, must have been just a few hours, a, a really bad episode, called uh the one about last night and it came out i think the morning after the obama election Mm -hmm. 
it had like no thesis it had nothing it was just sort of a recreation in the south park world of the election it was kind of weird i think the obama era is by the way when i stopped watching south park Mm -hmm. like pretty early into it well it got i think arguably even more topical then it became very much like issue of the week although it's since taken whole other turn which i guess we'll talk about next week where they've gone with i guess for the last two or three seasons like a serialized format the season is like a complete story i just dipped in i think you know once or twice like my girlfriend and i dipped into a few episodes last year you know we really weren't feeling it at all funny i've heard conflicting reports well it was like they were trying to do like the the trump election like mr garrison just is trump and like then caitlin jenner is like a character like, and they just... were they were also going after like you know campus free speech yeah stuff they're a doing lot. a lot of that stuff like and, and i think that's something that has to be recognized is there is definitely a relationship between kind of south park humor and that sort of like 4chan-y edgelord kind of thing which is which has kind of morphed into you know your jordan peterson stuff and your kind of you know annoying internet pedant bullshit well did you find that for a lot of people who were big south park fans it was kind of like south park was the almost the extent of their politics because there's something so you know closed about their worldview like you said anybody who tries to do anything good on the right or especially the left is the problem there's something so kind of maybe nihilistic is too strong a word but for people who have this as as a central pillar in their politics it's because it's easy Mm -hmm. and i think you know libertarianism especially like pre-2008 like for a lot of people when you're a teenager right like that's like it's like well libertarian so i'm just in favor of freedom how could you have a better politics mm-hmm. than that? So, it, like, it almost felt like, you know, the politics of South Park, they were neutral. And every everything else was politics. You know, South Park was just common sense. Like, and I yeah. think that is how Matt Stone and Trey Parker think about politics to some extent. Like, their politics are simultaneously easy while also giving the impression of nuance. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thus, the reality of the individual must be regarded as primary. If suffering is to be regarded seriously. Without such regard, there can be no motivation to reduce suffering and therefore no respite. Instead, the production of individual suffering can and has and will be again rationalized and justified for its supposed benefits for the future and the group. So I think that, I guess, about does it for South Park Bay or Longer and Uncut. We're going to, of course, do a much deeper dive into South Park proper. We're going to pick, you know, a few episodes. I don't know if there's any episodes, you know, in particular that you think we should do. I guess let us know on Twitter. We should watch Orgasmo. Remember Orgasmo? That was the movie Trey Parker and Matt Stone made before South Park. I've never heard of that. Oh, you'll love it. (laughs) That might be a special bonus episode. Um, And please keep pestering Will about the Patreon. I've not given up on that. Tell tell him how much, how keen you are to give us your money. Um, I'll do it if somebody out there gives me $50,000. Setting the bar a little high. I'm sure we must have at least one. What if if 50,000 people give you $1? Fine. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay, folks, uh, please crowdsource that. If ever one of my Twitter followers uh, <laughs> gives a dollar to Michael and us, then we're only uh, 20,000 follow- people away from... Uh... I don't know if that can fund my uh, lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> you know, let us know if there are any South Park episodes you want us to do. And I think we'll try to come back if we can, as it's been kind of three weeks since the last one, we'll try to come back a bit sooner, maybe sometime next week. Uh, until then, uh, watch this drive. Oh my God, they killed Kenny! <laughs> Times have changed. Our kids are getting worse. They won't obey their parents, they just wanna fart and curse. Should we blame the government or blame society? Or should we blame the images on TV? No! Blame Canada! Blame Canada! It seems that everything's gone wrong since Canada came along. Blame Canada! Blame Canada! We need to form a full assault! Don't blame yourself. For your son Stan He saw the darn cartoon And now he's off to join the clan And my boy Eric once Had my picture on his shelf But now when he sees me He tells me to myself Blame Canada Blame Canada Because when Canada is gone There'll be no North to lead the earth Blame Canada Blame Canada They're not even a real country anyway Kenny could have been a doctor or a lawyer rich and true. Instead, he burned up like a piggy on the barbecue. Should we blame the nurses? Should we blame the fire? All the doctors who allowed him to expire. Heck no! Canada! Canada! With all their hockey hullabaloo and that bitch Anne Marie too. Canada! All I can say is I give all this Canada Everybody! Margaret Trudeau's friendly side. Blame Canada. Shame on Canada. Born done. Smuggling the stuff. Trash the stuff. Confront the stuff. Confront the stuff. Confront the stuff.